All right, good evening, City Light U. How are you guys doing tonight? You guys are doing okay, it sounds like. I know it can be kind of confusing. We've got, oh, you know, there's two Johns. They both work at the church. They have glasses, amazing beards. But uh, to help you guys out, uh, I'm not an old man like John Randall, who just had his birthday on Sunday. So you guys can wish him a happy birthday. Getting close to retirement there. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so tonight we're going to continue uh, to journey through the book of Acts like we have been. Specifically, we're going to be in Acts chapter 17. And the big idea that we've seen over and over and over throughout this whole series of what's happening in the book of Acts is that it's a movement, not a monument. Uh, the stories in this specific book of the Bible, they're not cold, dead religious monument things, um, or just commemorating what once happened in history and isn't happening anymore. Um, Rather, this book is filled with stories about people connecting and encountering the living King Jesus. They've had their lives changed. Um, It's about how God has called his followers into mission to save sinners, you know, so we, we see this at the very beginning, how the Holy Spirit comes on the people and they are empowered to be, his, uh, to be the witnesses of Jesus. You know, we've seen the story of Paul, who used to be a Jesus hater and a church persecutor, but then he had an encounter with Jesus and now he is a Jesus follower and a church planter. It's only the gospel that can do things like this. And we've seen how the gospel is not just for Jewish people or for, you know, God's chosen people, Israel, but rather it's for the entire world. It's for the Gentiles as well. And so this mission has continued to go forth. And, uh, you know, these stories, it's not just happening just in Acts. These stories are still happening today because just like those early disciples, Acts 1-8 is still true for us even right now. Jesus said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so we have received that power. God has called us into this mission to be his witnesses, um, you know, here in Omaha, on the college campus, and even to the ends of the earth. And this is actually, uh, this idea of mission and, and the gospel is reflected in the core values of City Light U, in fact, all of City Light Church. And so it starts with down. You know, maybe you guys have heard these things before, but it's down, the gospel. It is Jesus Christ himself who has come down from heaven to save sinners. And that shapes everything that we do as a ministry, as a people, is the gospel. And so that influences the other core, the other core values of up, in, and out. And so we have up the spiritual formation, our continual pursuit of Jesus to be formed more into his image. We have in the idea of community and fellowship. So we eat together, we pray with one another, um, we, we celebrate Rich, even when he ri- wins another game of Settlers. We also comfort Parker because he's lost to Rich once again in a game of Settlers. That's right. And then there's out. This is the other mission. Uh, this is the other core value of mission. Uh, this is the fact that we are God's missionaries, and He has sent us out into the world to be His witnesses and to make disciples. And now, and tonight, uh, we are in Acts 17, and we're going to see that this chapter is primarily about the out. It's primarily about mission. 
And so tonight I want to keep things really practical, um, and we're going to look at the way that Paul has reached out to people. He's engaged the culture in such a way that the gospel is being preached, and Jesus is being glorified. And so specifically what we're going to see is we're going to look and learn more about Paul's motivation for mission. We're going to learn about uh, his method of mission, and we're going to learn about the message of mission. So the motivation, the method, and the message of mission. So since we were last in Acts, uh, we learned that God's message of salvation has been extended to the Gentiles, to all people. Um, So Paul and his team, they've been traveling around to various Gentile uh, cities kind of in the region. Uh, They have been preaching the gospel, they've been planting churches, making disciples, And so now uh, the gospel is finally advanced all the way to Athens. And so Paul has been sent ahead of his team. He's there in Athens kind of scouting out the city and learning more about the people. And so that's where we find him here in Acts 17, beginning in verse 16. And so we'll begin to unpack a little bit of the motivation for Paul's mission. And so in verse 16 it says, Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. And so the first thing that we have to know about Athens is that this was basically an intellectual and cultural hub of the Roman Empire. This is where all the things were happening. Uh, The people went there to learn new ideas. They were discussing various philosophies, new religions. It was just a center of thoughts and ideas all the time. Um, It was one of the most influential cities of the time. Um, And, you know, Paul could have easily been there and just kind of wandered around, saw the sights of the city, got some new souvenirs or pictures for his Instagram or whatever it might be. But that's not what Paul did. Paul's reaction was actually very different. And so it says here, we see that his spirit was provoked because the city was full of idols. And so an idol is basically anything that we are giving worship to above God. And so the city of Athens, it says it was covered in idols. They were submerged in idols. It was everywhere that you look. And so there were gold statues to various gods and goddesses. There may have been monuments to different philosophies or thoughts or teachers or whatever it might be. And Paul is just sitting there and he's thinking, these are not the droids you are looking for. That one was for Nathaniel. (laughs) And so Paul saw that these people were caught up in all of these worthless things and that God was being denied the glory that is due to his name and his name only. And so that Paul saw that whether these people realized it or not, they were actually being crushed by these idols that they were worshiping. You know, and I think this is important for us to to talk about because, you know, idols are not just these big gold statues that we might have that we bow down to because that's not something that we do anymore. Um, But idolatry is still a very real thing in the world today. You know, it just takes on different forms. Um, If you think about it, an idol is anything that's going to get our attention, our worship, our devotion above God himself. So there are a lot of things that we are tempted with uh, to be consumed by. So you think about uh, relationships 
or your college classes, or your future career, or maybe you, you know, you're working a job, or whatever that might look like for you, or it's social media, your, your social status. Um, there's just all of these things that we can be consumed by. Uh, money, that's a big one for a lot of people as well. Um, but it's also more than just uh, kind of these tangible items that we might pursue after. It's also you know, feelings and things of like comfort, or relaxation, if we're pursuing these things over God himself, um, you know, the pursuit of, of pleasure or entertainment, all of these things can be idols in our lives. And so we also need to be honest that this struggle with idolatry is true for all of us. There's not one of us that is immune to this. Um, <clears throat> and just because we might be Christians doesn't mean that we don't also struggle with these things. And so the reality is, is that if we're going to look at the world and see the idolatry around us, we first have to be able to see the idolatry that's happening in our own lives and our own hearts. Because if your heart is not breaking over the idolatry that we see in the world, it's very possible that you're not recognizing it and addressing it in your own life. And I think it's also important to point out at this point that seeing the idolatry around us is not judgmental. That's not what we're getting at. It's not this holier-than-thou judgment kind of thing, but it's actually about seeing the world as Jesus himself sees it. You know, so there's many times in the Gospels that we see Jesus, he is looking out on the crowds of people and he has compassion for them because he sees them as sheep without a shepherd. And so the question for us is, is our heart breaking like that? Is that how we're viewing the world? Are we viewing people the way that Paul is viewing the people of Athens? That people are being crushed by the idolatry in their lives. And so I'll be the first to confess that, you know, it's really easy for me to kind of turn a blind eye to these things and really ignore the idolatry that's around us. Because that means that I have to actually address it. I have to care about it. I have to do something about it. But I am so thankful that God himself has been convicting my heart in new ways. And he's been showing me more of these things. And he's not allowing me to stay in this place of complacency. And so about two years ago, my wife and I, we became homeowners for the first time, which was very exciting for us. Uh, it's a modest little home of about 4,000 square feet. That's not true. It's more like 1,000. Uh, raised ranch, very typical of the neighborhood. Um, you know, we were finally homeowners, and we were very, very lucky to actually have uh, a great neighborhood. You know, we know everybody's names. They're all super friendly. It's a lot of young families with kids, and the kids, that's what makes it actually fun. You know, these kids are riding their bike. They're playing basketball. Uh, they're doing their version of parkour, which is basically jumping up and down the concrete steps and trying not to break bones and bleed. So, I don't know. It works for them. That's fine. Um, you know, but uh, my neighbors, they're also just, they're really nice. They get together. They hang out with one another. Um, they have parties. You know, they get, they, they're friends. And so, uh, we are just very lucky that, in general, our neighbors are really nice people. And I'm very thankful for that. But, uh, as I've said, God's been working in my heart a little bit more than just seeing, you know, that these people are nice people. And as I've spent more time with the neighbors, I've started to see them kind of how God sees them. Um, <clears throat> I've also, you know, I've seen them as nice people, but I also see that there's also idols in their lives. 
And so probably the biggest thing that I've noticed from my neighbors is that they, they live for the weekend. That's their thing. You know, they're going to go to work, they're going to work their jobs, and then once Friday hits, it's party time. They're going to hang out with each other. They're going to uh, get together at each other's houses. They're just going to hang out and drink. That's what they like to do. That is their version of a good time. And I look at that and I say, those are just idols. You know, those are things that they're pursuing, that they're living for above God himself. You know, and this, in a sense, this is their God. And so um, I look at them and more and more I'm having the same kind of heart that Paul had for Athens, the same kind of heart that Christ has for us, that I see my neighbors, they're putting time and energy into these things that are just worthless, that are not going to fill them up. It's not going to lead to anything good. And I pray, and I pray that they would experience the freedom that's in Christ. That's what I long for them. I want, to, I want them to know Jesus in a very real way, just as I know Jesus in a very real way. And so the question is, you know, what is your motivation for mission? Do you have the same kind of heart that Paul had for Athens? Do you have the same kind of heart that Jesus had for you? You know, are you, um, are you compassionate about the mission of God, this motivation of, you know, seeing the idolatry around you? Because the truth is, there are people on campus um, that are living for other things. They're being crushed by these idols. And so I challenge us tonight that we would take notice and that we would begin to see people the way that God saw us and that we'd become burdened for those people that they would know Jesus. And so I think if we don't have this kind of motivation in our lives, um, it's actually very difficult to then go on to the method of mission. If we're not first understanding the motivation, it's going to be hard and burdensome for us to, to know about the method of the mission. And so we see Paul, you know, he is, he's in there in Athens. The people are consumed by idolatry. Um, but the big question is, what's he going to do next? What's his method to engage in mission? How is he going to respond? And so what we're going to see is that Paul doesn't completely reject these people Uh, nor does he just go about his business. He's actually going to engage with them in such a way that's going to build bridges and allow him to share the gospel with these people. And so uh, look with me. We'll be back in 17 to 21. So it says, So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, uh, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. And so I'll be honest, the first time I read this passage, I thought that Paul was some sort of crazy street evangelist. They're calling him a babbler, and so the image that I have in my head is like, he's out there, he's got that sign, he's yelling at people, and, you know, maybe a sign says something cheesy like, choose the bread of life or your toast, you know, some, I mean, 
something like that, which is not helpful at all, because the minute you bring up toast, I'm thinking about eggs and bacon and breakfast, and then I just become hungry. So that is the least effective missionary strategy in the world. Um, but actually, that is not what's happening here. Paul's not talking about breakfast or yelling from the street corner with a sign. Um, what we see in this text is that Paul's actually very smart with the way that he's engaging the culture. And so the two big things that he's focusing on is he's, t- he's, he's focusing on the proximity that he has with the people and the presence with the people. The proximity and the presence. And so, pro- so by proximity, um, we're talking about he is, he is with people. He is near people. So he may have rejected the idolatry of the people, but he has not rejected the people themselves. He's finding ways to engage with them where they're at. And so you notice that there's these normal rhythms that people are going about and doing, and Paul's engaging in those. So it talks about he's going to the synagogue. Uh, There's the marketplace. There's just these spheres in which natural conversation and relationship is going to happen, and that's where Paul is. He's in proximity with the people. And so, you know, for us, that might be like a coffee shop or a gym or, uh, you know, the student center on campus or something like that. These are, peop- these are places where people are already gathering, and it's easy to engage in conversation. And so the other thing that we notice about Paul is his presence, just how often is he with the people. And so the text says that he is with them every day. And this is a very intentional move on Paul's part to be with these people every day. Um, He is engaging with the normal rhythms every day. He is going to the marketplace every day. He's talking with them every day. And so what this is doing is that these people are seeing his face more and more and more. He's building credibility with them. He's building trust. He's building relationships with these people. And so what we learn from Paul is that our method of mission should not be talking about breakfast food as much as it is delicious, or holding up signs, or talking about toast, or whatever it might be, but it's actually about our proximity to people, and our presence, or how often we're with them. And so earlier, I'd kind of been talking about my neighbors. You know, they're, they're on the weekends, they're doing their thing, but I also try to find as many opportunities as I can to be in close proximity with them, and to just, you know, see them as often as possible. And so, you know, this might look like going to one of their weekend hangouts. They invite other people over. I want to be there. I want to get to know them. I want to build a relationship with them so we can have some rapport, have a real friendship. Um, you know, if I'm going out to get the mail and my neighbor is, is there across the street hanging out with his buddy, I'm going to go over and say hi. It's just kind of one of those things. Um, you know, or if my neighbor is, is decorating for Christmas, I'm going to go over and bother him. They probably actually really dislike this, that I'm over there all the time. But, I mean, this is, this is what it takes to build these relationships. This is the method of mission that we're learning from Paul and that we see here in Acts. And so my, um, you know, or, or here's another example, not just with neighbors, uh, but even with, like, some of my city group friends and their coworkers. You know, we recently, a couple weeks ago, we had a trivia night. So we all went out to a restaurant, and we engaged in this trivia night. It was from the TV show The Office, um, which I have seen way too many times that I care to admit, perhaps an idol in my life. Um, But we got second place because of a technicality. Uh, I am ashamed to admit that. I'm so sorry that I let you all down. 
But uh, what this did is it allowed us an opportunity to get to know these other coworkers, to build relationships with them, to reminisce about our favorite episodes of The Office. It's just a, a place where we can be in proximity with one another and, and just you know, spend time with each other. And so my question to you is, how can you get around people? You know, what are you doing to be in close proximity, to be in, present, to be in the presence with these people? That could be the coffee shop that you go to on a regular basis. It could be the gym that you go to on a regular basis or wish you went to on a regular basis. Um, you know, it could be your classes uh, or maybe you've got a job or something like that. Um, you know, but maybe you're joining an intramural team as well. That was always fun in college for me. But you could also be sitting there thinking like, these are all great things, but I don't know if you've noticed, I'm a college student, it's near the end of the semester, I'm taking three classes, I work two jobs, I have a test next week, and you're expecting me to join an intramural team or hang out somewhere? Well, I can understand that. You know, I understand those concerns. Or maybe you're sitting there and you're thinking, okay, I'm an introvert, and there's nothing wrong with that, but it just means that, you know, people kind of stress me out and I get tired, so what does that mean for me? Do I have to be around people all the time? No, it doesn't. The question that we should be asking ourselves is just how can we be intentional in those spaces? Because it's not necessarily about adding something extra to your schedule, but it's about being intentional with the time that you already have. And so maybe you've got a, a weekly study group or homework partners or something like that that you're doing. How can you be intentional in that time and in those relationships? Um, or maybe you work on campus uh, or off campus, whatever it might be. How are you being intentional with those coworkers or, or the people that you're serving or whatever it might look like? Uh, maybe you have a book club where everybody comes over and you sit in silence as you read a book. I've never been a part of a book club. I have no idea if that's what a book club is. But if it is, how could you be intentional in those areas? Might I make the suggestion that the book you read is the Bible? That would be a good one. Um, you know, so these, these things are not super complicated, uh, you know, crazy out there ideas. But it's going to take hard work. You know, it's going to take patience. It's going to take practice. Uh, there, there is a cost to being intentional with our time and with our relationships. But when we really think about the motivation of our mission, when we think about the fact that people are enslaved to sin, that there's idols that are crushing them, that are leaving them empty, how could we not move forward in love and engage in these methods of mission, to be intentional with our time and with our relationships. And so lastly, I want us to look at the message of the mission. Because I would argue that this is probably the most important part of the whole thing. Um, because this is the part where we actually have to open our mouths and we've got to say words. And sometimes that's not always the easiest. Because it doesn't really do any good if our hearts are burdened for these people and we've taken the time and the energy to build relationships with them and we don't actually proclaim the good news of the gospel to them. And so let me ask, if you had to explain the gospel, what would you say? If you were put on the spot right now and somebody asked you, who's God? Who is Jesus? What is the gospel? What would you say? How would you respond to that? How would you communicate it? And so for Paul, here in Acts 17, he's being asked these same questions. And so uh, they brought him to the Areopagus, 
which is basically kind of like uh, a city council um, or a public forum of sorts. And they're asking him these questions. They're saying, hey, we want to hear more about what you have to say about this man named Jesus and the resurrection that Paul keeps talking about. And so to help us answer this question of what is the gospel, uh, look with me starting in verse 22. So this is going to be kind of a longer passage, but this is also the word of God, and so it's got power, and so don't miss this. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, any image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when, he heard, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. And so from these verses... If we had to boil it all down to one sentence of what is the gospel, I think I would say this. I would say, Jesus saves us from our idolatry by rising from the dead. And so if we think about it, there is power and assurance in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is what sets Jesus apart from all the other gods and goddesses that the Athenians have been worshiping and bowing down to, is the resurrection. The resurrection is what the disciples witnessed. That, um, you know, in fact, all the way back to Acts 1.8, this was the resurrected Jesus that called the disciples to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. And notice that it was the resurrection, just earlier here in the passage, that the people wanted to hear more from Paul. And it was the resurrection that caused people to mock other people to say, we want to hear more. And still yet, it was the resurrection, the truth that Jesus has risen from the grave, that other people believed. And so what does this resurrection do? Yes, it does prove without a doubt that Jesus Christ himself is God, but it also does more than that. It gives Jesus the right to judge our idolatry. 
He is the only true God, and he will not share his worship and glory with another. He will not share it with the lesser gods that we make for ourselves, the idols that we have in our lives. And so let me ask, how will Jesus judge your life and your idolatry? The truth is that we've all failed. Every one of us. I have failed at this. We have all made idols for ourselves. We've all made lesser gods. We've all done things that we shouldn't. We have all sinned and we've all fallen short of the glory of God. And so Jesus is actually right and just to judge us. But he didn't stop there. Instead of letting us just dwell within our sin and our condemnation, he was crushed for us. He endured the punishment that our sin and our idolatry earns us, but he was resurrected, defeating sin and death. And whoever believes in him, um, if we believe that Jesus is the one true God who has come and he's done these things, he is who he says he is, that he is deserving of all of our worship, then he will save you. And that is where we should put our hope. And so now the question is, for all of us, how have you responded to this truth? You know, have you turned away from those worthless idols and have you turned to Jesus? Because this idea of repentance, of of repent, it's not this old stuffy church word that we sometimes use. It's actually a very beautiful and a very grace-filled word that we would we would turn away from our sin and that God would allow us to turn to himself and place our faith in Jesus. And so if you're sitting there and you've not seriously asked yourself these questions or wrestled with them, I would encourage you, please do that. You know, what if Jesus is who he says he is? What if this word is actually true? What if Jesus did rise from the dead? How are you going to wrestle with that? Because that is what is true. And for us who do believe in Jesus, that he is who he says he is, that he has raised from the dead and conquered sin and death, and in him we have life, the question I ask to you is, you know, what are the idols that are still in your life? Because those are still very real things uh, that we deal with. And so I would encourage you to wrestle with that, pray through that, talk with other people about that. And so to end, I just want to give one final story to kind of wrap this all up. This idea of motivation, of method, of message. And so this was uh, a couple years ago. We had this city group who they were burdened for the people around them. You know, they wanted to make a difference in, in, you know, in the lives of the people of Omaha. They were seeing the idols that people were living for. And so what did they do? They started going to a country redneck bar called Rednecks. It's here in town. They would get together each week. They would do some country line dancing or whatever it is that they do. I have never been there. Um, But what they were doing is that they were there. They were in proximity with people. They were spending time with them. They were engaging with them on a regular basis. And you know what happened? They met a guy named Colby. Colby was looking for community. And he just ended up going to this bar called Rednecks. And the city group saw him, they engaged with him, they invited him over to sit at their table and to dance with them, and they began to see Colby the way that Jesus saw us. They had compassion on him because they saw that Colby didn't have hope in Christ. So they began to share the gospel with him. They began to invite him to their city group gatherings. And by the grace of God, Colby believed. He accepted Christ. 
all from this city group engaging people at a country line dance bar. That's amazing. That is the gospel at work. That is people living on mission for the glory of God. And so my prayer for us tonight is that we would be doing the same thing, that we would be on mission, that we would be witnesses to Jesus, that we would uh, declare the truth of the gospel and the resurrection of Jesus. And so may we see the world that Jesus sees it. May we be intentional with our lives and with our relationships, and may we boldly proclaim the message of the gospel. Let's pray. Jesus, we come to you, and we praise you, and we worship you, because you are the only one who is deserving of all the glory and worship in the world.